One of the things that I have come to believe about human beings is that we have a hard time coming to grips with things that are new and unusual, things that mean a change in our life, right? We don't like change. Can I get a show of hands, right? We don't like things that we've never experienced before. And, and I think part of the, the dis-ease that we have when we're experiencing something new, something for the first time, is that we don't have a, a, a framework of understanding to be able to hang that new experience. And, oh, this is like these things that I've experienced before, right? I mean, if, if it's the kind of thing that you do on a regular basis, then you've figured it out. You know what it means. You don't have to worry about trying to figure that out. But if you experience something new, so for instance, if you've never seen a Monty Python movie before, you have a hard time trying to decide what is going on there, right? Or Wes Anderson movies, for that matter, for a younger generation. I'm not sure what genre that fits in with. It just doesn't seem to be like anything I've ever seen before. Or if you've never had a kidney stone before, oh, this is what it's like for a woman to give birth. Oh, yeah. oh, oh sorry, sorry, ladies. Or on a much serious, more serious note, I was 18 years old when a contemporary my own age died. As an 18-year-old having a friend that was killed in an automobile accident, I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. I'd never had to experience mortality that way before. This is a person that's alive and talking to me one day at work, and then the next day they're, they're gone. It takes a while for us to figure out what all that means. We need to have a, a frame of reference to hang these new things on that's kind of like some other things that we've experienced before. And of course, the, the story of Holy Week is one that's full of new experiences for the disciples, right? They're not quite sure what to make of some of the things that go on during that week. They ask questions, but they're not quite sure what it means. Jesus has, at least on three occasions, warned them that he was going to Jerusalem, that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be beaten, that he was going to be crucified, and that he was going to raise, be raised on the third day. I mean, at least three times Jesus told this. Jesus trying to create a framework on which the disciples would be able to hang that event when it happens. Oh, this is what that looks like. This is what that means. But somehow or another, it didn't register with the disciples. And so when they finally go through the whole Last Supper and, and uh, Good Friday, Jesus dying on the cross and being buried, that's just overwhelming information, experiences that they don't know what to, to make, how to make sense of that. When they come to Easter Sunday morning and they find an empty tomb, I can just see the nuclear bombs going off in their brain. I, I have no idea what to make of this. How do you explain this? Join me in Mark's gospel, last chapter 16, Mark's very brief description of that 
Easter Sunday morning all those years ago, an event for which nobody was prepared. Mark chapter 16, I'll begin reading at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, that's Friday after Jesus had been crucified, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought the spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. How do I make sense of this? What's going on here? Don't be alarmed, he said. <laughs> you know how many times angels have to say that? <laughs> Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. <laughs> That's an angel's nice way of saying, I told you so. <laughs> Trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They couldn't make sense of this. Try to put yourself in the position of these three women on Easter Sunday morning. What were they expecting? From the evidence that we have in this story, what were they expecting? They went to the tomb that morning expecting to find a dead body, right? Not a resurrected missing body. Despite having been told on at least three occasions that Jesus would die and be raised on the third day, these women and everybody else didn't have a framework on which to hang this new experience, this information, this finding. Jesus' followers, perhaps these ladies included, might have thought that Jesus had predicted his death in some sort of a metaphorical, symbolic way. Jesus was noted for speaking in pictures, right? Parables and parabolic sayings. Jesus was noted for trying to illustrate things so people would be able to make sense of it. And perhaps they thought as they went to the tomb that this whole talk of dying and being raised was some sort of a symbolic metaphorical thing that Jesus was saying. But no, they found that morning that Jesus had been very literal. He was going to Jerusalem. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be handed over to the Romans. He was going to be crucified, and he was going to die. That's exactly what he meant. So imagine their emotions that morning on their way to the tomb. They had expected Jesus to be the Messiah, this figure that everyone in Israel was looking forward to. 
And despite the fact that time after time Jesus confounded those expectations, they were still expecting something else, and now Jesus was dead. Jesus was buried. His bloody body was wrapped in linen cloths inside that tomb someplace, and all of their hopes were dashed. All of their expectations are down the tubes. How would you feel? The fact that there's only three women showing up at this grave leads me to believe that a lot of those disciples felt like it's not worth it anymore. Let's just run for our lives. Let's go back home. Let's become fishermen again. wonder if I can get that tax gig back. Hopes are dashed. Dreams are dead. These women, though despite the fact that their hopes were dashed, they were committed to Jesus. And if the last thing they could do would be to prepare his body for death, for burial, then that that's what they were going to do. So Friday after Jesus had died on the cross, they went to the shops where they bought the spices that they would need to anoint his body. They gathered the supplies that they would need. And then on Sunday morning... They got up early and they took those supplies. Perhaps they had a a bucket or two of water and some wash rags to clean his bloody body before they re-wrapped it with these spices. The spices were for the purpose of, um, how shall I say this, to to mitigate the smell of a decomposing body. The burial practices of the time said that you wrap the body in a linen cloth with these spices, you put it in a tomb, and you left it for a year. And what happens to the body after a year? It decomposes. It turns to dust. So a year later, they would go back to that tomb, and all that would be left would be a skeleton. And they would take the bones apart and put them in a bone box, an ossuary is what they call it. And then they would permanently bury that in a tomb someplace. And that's what these women were expecting to do. That's what they came prepared to do. That's what they knew probably from life experience. This is what you do when somebody dies. It's all over. They were prepared in every way, though, except that they forgot about the big stone that was rolled across the opening of that tomb. They didn't think that they were big enough to, to move that stone, even the three of them working together. So they're, they're wondering, oh, you know, who are we going to get to roll this stone away? Should we go back and wake up one of those slumbering guys? Who's gonna... And then they show up, and the stone has been rolled away. Hallelujah. That's odd. And when they go into the tomb, they find a man dressed in white, one that we know to be an angel from our point of view. And he explains that Jesus isn't dead anymore, and he's not there anymore. And he told you what to do. Did you forget this? (laughs) He's going to meet you in Galilee. That stone rolled away. You know, the more you think about it, the stone was not rolled away by the angel so that Jesus could get out. Right. The, the day Easter Sunday would, uh, would show, if you read the other accounts, that Jesus had this remarkable way now of 
coming and going through locked doors and through walls into rooms. He didn't need to open the door. He didn't need somebody to take that stone out of the way so that Jesus could get out of the tomb. He needed somebody to take that stone away so that we could get into that tomb. The stone was rolled away because God wants to let us in. On Friday, when he had died at the moment of his death, what had happened in the temple? The veil that separated the other parts of the temple from the Holy of Holies where God lived, the veil had been torn in two from top to bottom. God made a way for people to get into the Holy of Holies. The author of the letter to the Hebrews said, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. (laughs) God makes a way for us to get in, doesn't he? God always takes the first step. In salvation, God takes the first step. His son dying on a cross that we might be saved. And what does it mean to be saved? It means to be justified. In a legal sense, we are guilty as sin, aren't we? I say we are guilty as sin, aren't we? That wasn't nearly 100%. We are guilty as sin. But God declares us not guilty. And then he regenerates us. It's a biological term talking about new life. That's where we get the born again phrase. We were dead in our sins, but Jesus makes us alive in his righteousness. We have a new life with new capacities to be able to love and serve and obey God. But that's not all in true Ronco fashion because the third thing he does for us in salvation is to adopt us into his family. Is that not the best news you've ever heard? I don't know about you, but I think every one of our families is dysfunctional in comparison to the family of God. And if we had a choice, we would want to get out of that dysfunctional and be a part of his functional, holy family, right? That wasn't quite 100% either. Not all of you are convinced. (laughs) He sets us free from our sin, and he adopts us into his family. But that's not all. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, poured out lavishly in our lives. And the best part of that is that with the Holy Spirit comes the ability for us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Did we love God before we got saved? No, it was impossible. We loved ourselves. But when we're filled with his spirit because of Jesus Christ, we can love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we can love our neighbor as ourself. Turn to the person next to you, and I really, you gotta say, you gotta mean this, okay? Turn to the person next to you and say, I love you, neighbor. 
Now, now, now say it with a little more gusto. I love you. And how can we love our neighbor? It's because God loves us. And then he gives us the mind of Christ. He literally changes our mind. Guys, can I get a witness about how hard that is to do? (laughs) But God does that. He changes our mind, giving us the mind of Christ, that we might live productive lives in his kingdom. So God is in the business of rolling stones out of the way so that we can get into the deepest kind of love relationship you can possibly imagine, a love relationship with God. That is good news. But we don't have a frame of reference to make sense of that, do we? I I don't know about you, but the day I got saved, I was really seriously surprised. I, I didn't know what to make of this because nothing like this had ever happened in my life before. We don't have a frame of reference to make sense of how God invites us into his holy presence. You've heard people say, well, God couldn't possibly forgive somebody like me, right? It doesn't make sense that God would forgive somebody that's done the kind of things that I do. I I, I don't know how to understand an offer of grace like that, but God does. When we don't have a frame of reference to make sense of what we're experiencing, one of the things that often happens in our life is that we are afraid, right? Right? I don't know what's happening next. I've never been through an experience like this before. How do I know that right around the corner is danger? How do I know that that, that this whole thing is going to go horribly bad? I, I don't know what to do, so I'm afraid. Throughout the Old Testament, there were countless people who encountered angels, encountered God in some way, and they were terrified of the thought of seeing God's face, right? You remember these stories, I've seen the face of God. I'm going to die. That's what happens when you're in the presence of God. You die. Fear is the most common human reaction, by the way. For those that have sorted through these things, gone through all of these stories in the Bible, encounters between human beings and God, the, the number one reaction, human reaction to the divine presence in the Bible is fear. And it's no different in Mark's gospel. Mark gives us a catalog of times that disciples and followers were afraid. The first one is Jesus calming the storm on the, Galilee and, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples, it says, were terrified. <laughs> I love that word. I, I don't love that word. <laughs> In the Gerasene tombs, Jesus casts a demon out of a man who has been possessed by that demon for years and years and years. The townspeople come out to see what has happened, and they see this man dressed and in his right mind, and they are afraid. I would be happy, but they're afraid because they know something happened here that can't be explained in human terms. There was the woman with the issue of blood who came up to Jesus in a crowd of people hoping that if she could touch the hem of his garment that she would be healed from this this illness that had plagued her for 12 long years, had drained all of her financial and emotional resources. She comes up to Jesus, she touches his hem, 
she feels that she has been cleansed, Jesus turns around and says, somebody touched me in this crowd. There's hundreds and hundreds of people crowding around and somebody touched me. This is one of the more humorous statements in the Bible. Uh, duh, of course people touch. But Jesus felt the power of healing going out of him. And that woman knew that what she had tried to do in secret had been found out. And so she comes forward and she confesses. She says, it's me. I'm the one that touched you. But when she comes to him, she's, according to Mark, she's trembling with fear. I don't know what this man might say or do to me. I'm grateful I've been healed, but I'm terrified of what might come next. That episode, of course, comes right in the middle of another story. Jesus has been called to the home of Jairus, a synagogue leader in this town whose daughter is ill and on the verge of death. This woman touches his garment as they're on the way there, but then shortly after that, some people come from Jairus' home and they say, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter is dead. And they must have been frightened. They must have known that this was not just your garden variety teacher. This was somebody that had power unlike anything else. And so it says that the people who came to deliver that bad news to Jairus and his wife were met with this response from Jesus. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of death. Don't be afraid of your loss. Don't be afraid of what might happen next. In, in Mark's gospel, the second of the three times that Jesus predicts his death to his disciples, it says the disciples didn't understand what he meant, but they were afraid to ask him. Now, that's a fear I can understand. You know, I don't want to be made a fool. I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't want to be the one to ask the obvious question. They were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant about his death and resurrection. And so they didn't get the answer they needed. While the disciples and Jesus were making their way to Jerusalem for the last time, it said that Jesus, in Mark's gospel, he says that Jesus was leading the way. Jesus is leading his disciples to Jerusalem. And he knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem that last time, right? I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles and they're going to crucify me on a cross and I'm going to die and I'm going to be buried. He knew that that was coming. And yet he was the one that was leading the way. I don't know about you, but if, if I were in that, I would try to blend in with a crowd perhaps. <laughs> you know, somebody else get there first and see what it's like. But Jesus is leading the way and Mark tells us that those who were following him were afraid. We don't know what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem, and so we're afraid. So Mark gives us this catalog of fearful things that happen to the disciples. But in Mark's gospel, he uses this fear with a, a slight twist. Every opportunity where fear is mentioned in Mark's gospel, it represents, represents an opportunity for his disciples to encounter faith, to express faith or to engage in some action of faith. So Jesus calms the storms and the disciples ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I'm afraid. 
In ancient times and modern times, nature was a fearful, uncontrollable force. It's probably the last thing that we're really truly afraid of because a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake could happen any place at any time, right? And we have nothing that we can do to, to protect ourselves. Well, that was the case even more back then. Virtually all of the pagan gods had something to do with trying to control nature because it was a terrifying force. Jesus proves, though, in calming that sea, that he has the power over natural forces that cause us to fear that we can trust in God. That Gerasene demoniac, the other terror in the ancient world, probably had to do with demonic powers. The unexplainable way that that evil could enter a person's life and twist up their life and, and make it not only miserable for them, but dangerous for everybody else too. But Jesus proves that he has power over the forces of evil. Aren't you glad of that? The woman with the issue of blood was struggling with a variety of things, not only her illness, but also the fact that as a a person with a sickness, a long sickness, people probably thought she was a sinner, that she had somehow brought that on herself. It also made her unclean so that she wasn't able to associate, associate with her friends or her family. She wasn't able to worship God in the temple or the synagogue because she was unclean. Jesus comes up to her and heals her But what he's also doing is saying, and the sin, whatever that might have been, has also been forgiven, and I want to restore you, an outcast, to the the community of the faithful. I want to bring you back into the family. Jairus and his wife, if uh, illness is a sign of sin, then an early, untimely death would certainly be uh, a punishment on somebody's sin. So that's probably, probably part of the struggle, the stress that this mother and father are bearing. But Jesus proves that death is not the end of the story. Amen. It's not the worst thing that could happen to us. We don't need to be afraid of death. And then that time when Jesus predicted his death a second time and the disciples were afraid to to talk to him and to ask him any more questions about it. Part of the fact that they didn't have a frame of reference was that it was only a couple hundred years or so before the time of Christ that the Jewish people developed a theology of the afterlife. You find that hard to believe that there was no heaven or hell back in the days of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? There was Sheol, it was a word that was used to describe the place where dead people went. All dead people went to Sheol. So it's not like these disciples who were told by Jesus that he's going to die and then be raised on the third day had some frame of reference because dead people just went to Sheol. It was only in more recent times that they had started to develop a theology of a, of a heaven of of righteousness and a hell of punishment. But Jesus comes along and opens a door to life after death, a resurrection life that is completely unlike anything that we have ever experienced before. One day we who follow Christ will experience that. He's the down payment And while Jesus leads the way to Jerusalem for this last time, 
Are Jesus' followers able to believe that allowing evil to do its worst is the way to victory over sin and the world and the devil? That doesn't make sense. It's only after the fact that they would realize what enabled Jesus to lead the way, to turn his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. The women in today's text shouldn't have been surprised or alarmed to find the tombstone rolled away and an angel present telling them about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had told them several times before that he would rise again. And when you stop and think about it, the Old Testament is chock full of resurrection stories, isn't it? You ask, what? I would suggest to you that Noah and the ark is a resurrection story. I would suggest to you that every barren old woman who gave birth to a child in her old age is a resurrection story. I would suggest that when a ram appears, just as Abram is about to stab his only son to death, that's a resurrection story. I would suggest that Joseph leaving prison to become Egypt's prime minister is a resurrection story. I would suggest that Moses being scooped out of the Nile River as a baby is a resurrection story. The Israelites coming out of the Red Sea is a resurrection story. (laughs) Why didn't these women get a clue? (laughs) Because this is a resurrection story of a completely different kind. And they didn't have a framework to hang this bit of information on. So the women leave this encounter with the angel in the empty tomb, trembling and bewildered. And they don't say anything to anyone because they're afraid. But remember, this is Mark's gospel. And fear is an opportunity to develop faith. And the faith that Jesus wanted them to develop is perhaps best described by Paul when he writes a letter to the Ephesians. And Vicki wrote a section, read a section of this earlier. I'd like to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The opportunity these women had to develop faith instead of fear meant that they were on the verge of being filled with a spirit of wisdom and revelation so they could know God better. 
In the midst of our fears, God provides a faith framework on which we can hang the kind of relationship that we can have with Almighty God. It's one that's full of wisdom and revelation. Anybody want a piece of that? Paul prays, and these women have the opportunity to embrace eyes of faith to know the hope that we have in Christ. In the midst of our fears, God provides a faith framework where we can leave our fears behind and embrace hope, the hope that we only have in Christ. And then there's the resurrection power of God. In the midst of our fears, God provides a faith framework on which we can hang a sanctifying power unlike any other. Evil is, has done its worst to Christ and has done its worst to us. And on the other side of that evil is the power that comes through the, Christ, the, the death and resurrection of Christ, a power that makes us white as snow. Oh, pastor, you don't know. I mean, I've done some really horrible stuff. Who cares? The resurrection power of God is at work in us that we might be white as snow. And all of this works together, all of this faith formation, all of it works together so that we, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, may be his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Not a shrunken down little copy of Jesus. Not a protective dose of Jesus' salvation. No, we are filled with the Holy Spirit that we might collectively be the fullness of Jesus Christ. You woke up this morning hoping to get a little chocolate for Easter? Resurrection power has a way of meeting us at the point of our fear and instilling within us a peace that passes understanding. But that's not all. These women who went to that tomb on Easter Sunday morning and found it empty were told by the man dressed in white that they should go and tell. These women were being commissioned as the very first Christian apostles. The word apostle means one who is sent. We start off as disciples, one who follows. But then Jesus commissions us to be apostles, one who is sent. And these women, of all people, are the very first Christian apostles. And I can imagine how terrifying that probably was for them, because in that day and age, women were not competent or thought able to be witnesses, to testify in a court of law. They didn't have the experience. They didn't have the standing. They didn't have permission to go tell anybody anything. And yet they're instructed, the first ones instructed by the the angel to go tell the greatest news that has ever been heard. No wonder they were terrified. Now, pick up your Bible and look at the end of, of Mark's gospel with me. More than likely, especially if you've got the New International Version, you've got all kinds of footnote stuff and italics going on here. Verse 8 ends, They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. There are those that suggest that that's where Mark intended to stop his gospel. 
Maybe this was one of his literary devices to help us somehow fill in the blank. Most of the commentators I've read this week say, no, it's more than likely the end of Mark's gospel was a part of the scroll that got ripped off pretty early someplace. And so some other people patch together some of the Resurrection Day stories and give us verse 9 through 20. It's probably not what Mark originally intended to be there. But we know the rest of the story from other Gospels, right? So, so this missing part of the Gospel, probably lost, gives us an opportunity this morning. An opportunity for us to speculate on what the women did next. I don't think they just said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. So what did they do? Let's use our imaginations. One person describes Mark's gospel saying, Mark's story of Jesus becomes the story of his followers. And their story becomes the story of the readers. That's you and me whether we will follow or desert, whether we will believe or misunderstand, whether they will, we will see him in Galilee or remain staring bl- blindly into the empty tomb, and it all depends upon us. So here's an opportunity. What would we do if we were those women? Where would we go? Who would we talk to? First, I want to ask you, and I'm expecting some real answers, what feeling does this great commission elicit in you? They were terrified. They were frightened. But to have an angel say to you, I want you to go and tell somebody about Jesus, what's the feeling that comes up in you right now? Overwhelmed? Scared? Scared? ill-equipped? I don't know the answers. What do you say? All right. Well, next question. Supposing you have enough courage to believe that God is filling with you his spirit, empowering you to be his witness, commissioning you to be his apostle, who would you go tell? Who's the first person that doesn't know Jesus that you would go tell? A neighbor? You can call out names if you want. They probably won't hear you on YouTube, so they won't know that you mentioned them. But who would you tell for our kids? Family. Who? Coworkers? Friends? That kid that sits at the desk next to you that's always making your life miserable. Yeah, he really. Your parents. Maybe that's the most terrifying one of all, right? (laughs) Knowing that that person may not have a framework on which to hang this story, this might be completely new to them, as Lynn was talking to the kids this morning. You know, how are you going to tell this story? So, um, what kind of resurrection story in your own life might you tell them so that they can begin to say, oh, Okay, I kind of know what you're talking about there. Anybody have a good resurrection story in their life? Just give me a few uh, words, a brief description of a time when you 
in a metaphorical sense, were raised from the dead. Something completely unexpected happened by God's, God's grace. And you might use that as a way of telling this other person about resurrection power. Do you have a little story like that? And make it short, Lorraine. I know this is going to be a challenge for you. but. You... So, Lorraine praying on the floor in New Orleans after having thrown beads at the Marty. Oh, oh, that wasn't part of the story. No, <laughs> a man saw her praying, and that restored his faith. One other person, a little bit of a resurrection story in your own life that you might be able to use to share the gospel with somebody else. That God's love was strong enough to over, overwhelm all the drinking and drugs and become one with the dead. Amen. Pastor Mike, a life of drinking and drugging, and God overcame that and has turned him into a blessing in his family and in many congregations. God rolls away stones, doesn't he? He's in the business of rolling away stones, opening up a way so that we can encounter his purifying, equipping resurrection power. While God's great commission might be a bit frightening to some of us, his Easter morning resurrection power is more than adequate to make us what God designed us to be, his ambassadors, his storytellers, his apostles. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And I would invite you first, just in your own silent prayer, to tell God about your feelings about being commissioned as an apostle. Tell the Lord about your insecurities, your fears, your uncertainties, whatever it might be. Just express that honestly to a God who loves you and wants to fill you with resurrection power. Just talk to him about that. while we're thinking about feelings. Tell God about the feelings you have of being raised from the dead by the mercy, the salvation of God. What does it feel like to be a part of his family? What does it, does, is it, what does it feel like to be born again? What does it feel like to be set free from sin? Express to the Lord those feelings in praise. And finally, would you pray for that friend, that neighbor, the coworker, the family member, the person that you've been praying for for weeks and weeks now? 
Pray for that person and the opportunities that you might have this week to share a resurrection story. Father, we thank you for taking us, all of us, completely unworthy, dead in our sins, and giving us new life, giving us your life, your abundant life, your eternal life. Father, we celebrate it again this Easter Sunday morning, while at the same time realizing that you have given us a commission a commission to go and tell, to go and live, to go and set an example. Father, help us to do that in confidence, knowing that it's your power that is at work within us, your resurrection power that is at work within us. Mm -hmm. And all of God's children say, Amen. Amen.